Good morning. This morning's scripture reading will be from Psalm chapter 73, verses 1 through 3. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was anxious, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Good morning. Wonderful to sing that song together, and uh, just so captures the uh, the lesson today, the text that we're going to be looking at in a few moments. Welcome to all who've come our way, especially those who are visiting with us today. We're so thankful that you've come. We also want to welcome our newest United States citizen, Mr. Dan Page. <clears throat> As you can tell from his accent when he led the prayer, Dan is from the Czech Republic <laughs> or Canada or one of those countries that starts with the C. But uh, welcome, welcome aboard. <laughs> now you and Jean Jane can have conversations without Jean having to turn in a report to the government. That's that's going to be a nice nice change in your relationship. Uh, also, many of you might know that uh, Mike Ray, Jim Angotti, and Renato Andrade are on their way back from Manuelito Children's Home, where they have uh, delivered a whole bunch of food, and uh, they've had a great time. They've, I told them, told Mike they're having way too much time. They, Renato sent me a bunch of pictures on the way. I'll have to. They will find their way into sermon powerpoints. I promise you, because some of them are pretty funny. But uh, we'll have to have to wait a week or so on that. I was reading an article this week about a grandma who was frustrated with trying to divide a Hershey's chocolate almond bar between her two grandsons. Because, you know, the almond bars don't have the lines in them where you can do it evenly. And every time she would break it in half, there would always be a complaint. One of them would always say, well, his piece is bigger than mine, or he got six almonds and I only got four almonds. And so finally she said, okay, this is the way it's going to be. I'm going to give you the candy bar. One of you is going to break it in half, and the other gets to choose which half they want. And she said it was fascinating to watch these, these kids, this little boy, with the attention and the precision, she said, of a neurosurgeon. You know, just getting that right down in that spot, because he sure didn't want his brother to get more of the candy than, than he had. And, you know, he, he wanted it to be fair. And fair means, of course, I should... I should have fairness. And I think we, we understand that whole idea and that desire for fairness and justice. I mean, we all want fairness and justice in the world on a large scale, and probably we like it pretty much on a, a small scale for ourselves. We want things to go with us. We don't want life to be unfair. There's unfairness and injustice and corruption everywhere, but I was really struck with it when we moved to Kenya and began to see so many people who would be abused by those in power, and there was absolutely no recourse whatsoever to their problems. And then one day it happened to me. And many of you have heard this story before. This is the short version of it. Um, the, the, the electricity at the Comorock Church building was turned off because we had not paid our electric bill. We hadn't paid our electric bill because we had not received an electric bill. But oftentimes the utilities there will just not send you a bill so that your power gets cut off or your phone gets cut off. And then when you want to get it turned back on, guess what? It costs just a little bit extra to get the service restored. Well, we had done that. We had paid the extra. And that's when the 
technician showed up to reconnect our electricity. And he got there and he accused us of having tried to steal electricity from the city, from Kenya Power and Lighting Company. That's the logo that you're looking at. And we said, what do you mean? We had no way of getting, oh, I think your meter's moved. I think you're... And we said, no. And he goes, well, you give me some, you know, you give me some money. You give me another, you know, 3,000 shillings and I'll hook it up. But you've stolen electricity. And we said, there's no way we're giving you any money. The next day, Dennis and I went into KPLC. We found the manager in this big office and all these folks walking around. We got up to the manager. We were so surprised. We actually got to the guy in control. And we're telling him the story about this corrupt technician that they've got working for the Kenya Power Lighting Company. And while we're telling him the story and pleading our case, who walks in the, the room but the very technician himself right through the middle of the office. And so we said, that's him. But how providential. That's the guy right there. And the, the manager looked looked over across the building and saw him, and he, he stood up, and we thought, finally some action. And it was, but not quite what we ex- imagined. He looked at us, and he pointed at Dennis and I, and he said, you men are thieves, you men are liars, you've stolen electricity from KPLC, and get out of this office, and you'll not get any electricity until you pay that man when he comes to your building. And we realized, of course, that they're in it together, that it's a way that they can make money. And we went back, kind of slinking out. I've never slunk out of a, an office as a liar and a thief before. That was my first, so far I think my only time, for those two things at the same time. And, um, and it's frustrating. There's no recourse. We were talking to the guy from whom you can get the recourse. And there was no recourse. And that's just the way it is. And folks who live there just kind of got that. But what really frustrated me was thinking about the poorer people that could not pay what we were going to have to pay. The people who would go without electricity because someone was cheating them. And it's just a reminder, folks, that life isn't fair. It's just not fair. And it's not limited to Kenya or any particular country. It's even in the Bible. In the Bible, the psalmists talk about this over and over again. They talk about the evil man. And the evil man is a guy who doesn't believe in God, or if he does, he mocks God. He has no concerns whatsoever about being a godly person. He makes no attempts to be holy or pure. He's just out for himself, and it seems like it's working. He's rich, and he's happy, and he's got a big family, and he's, everything seems to be going well in his life. And the psalmists deal with this situation, and they wonder, what's, what's going on here? Life just doesn't seem to be fair. And it's not just that the faithless person is prospering. It's that the righteous person is suffering. And oftentimes there's suffering and injustice at the hand of the unrighteous person who's the cause of it. Why do the faithless prosper and the righteous perish? Does faith not matter at all? Does virtue count for nothing? Is there not even some kind of fairness coming from God about these things? Why does a worldly person get the promotion and get all of the raises and get all the acclaim and the person, the Christian person who's just trying to do their job the best way is the one who can't find employment? Why is it that that someone has figured out how to make an abuse of all the public assistance programs that there are and get himself a nice fat paycheck every month from other folks while some Christian invalid 
woman who's a believer in Christ who has legitimate needs can't get anything. We kind of know about situations like that. Some of us do. But one of our former sisters here never could qualify. It's like you're blind, you've got no income, but she couldn't get anything. Why, why is, how does stuff like that happen? How, how is it that a Christian says, Hey, I go to church all the time, I married a Christian woman. My friends aren't Christians, they don't even believe in God. And their marriage looks like it's great, and they have wonderful, happy kids, and my wife left me for somebody else at the church. It's like, does it count for nothing? I'm just trying to be devoted to God. I'm just trying to live a Christian life. Why is it so true that believers often find themselves suffering in circumstances that just don't seem to fit with their faith? Should life be fair for a believer? I mean, does an attempt at holiness and righteousness and faith in God count for nothing? Is, it, is, is there nothing that comes because of that? And when we come to the Scriptures, the psalmists don't shy away from this question. They just come out and ask it. And in Psalm 73, there's a man by the name of Asaph who wants to know. Because as he looks at his life and his world and observes what's going on, there's this disconnect between what he sees and, and what he has come to believe about God, what God has said about himself, what God has said about the way things ought to work. And so rather than just kind of ignoring that, Asaph is the kind of man who just takes it to God and says, okay, here it is. Here's what's going on, and I would like to hear from you. And so he does. When we come to Psalm 73, starts out in the very first verse, he says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Oh, God is good to Israel. That's his kind of his starting point. That's his thesis, and he'll, he'll come back to that at the end. But that's, that's basically how he sees life. Well, surely God's going to be good to Israel, who are pure in heart. He recognizes that they need to be living in the covenant. But what does the covenant tell them? Well, God will bless them. God will bless his people if they're pure in heart. God will take care of them. God will make sure that their crops grow. Everything, things will work out for them. That's kind of his starting point. God is a good God and God will be faithful to his people and to the promises that he's made. But the psalm reveals that this man has been struggling with that principle. He's been struggling and he's begun to doubt whether or not that's actually the case. And so, in verses 2 and 3, he kind of pulls back the curtain on this struggle that he's having. He says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He said, I just need to tell you what's, what's going on in my life. I got to the point where I was just about to lose it. I mean, the ground was dropping up from underneath my feet. My feet were, I felt like I was you know, walking on wet pavement, my feet were slipping, and the, the slipperiness and the dropping out is his faith. It's like the foundation that he's building his life on seems to be falling apart. Isn't God supposed to bless the righteous and punish the wicked? But that's not what he's observing. And he's so discouraged by this. Do you hear what he says? He's so discouraged by this that he's driven to envy the very wicked people whose lifestyle he opposes because they seem to be prospering so much. 
And he's finding himself being envious of what wicked people have. And he doesn't like that. He doesn't like what's going on in his heart and in his life. And he goes on to explain it more fully, starting at verse 4. He says, They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease. They increase in riches. And he just doesn't understand. And you notice he's becoming a bit obsessed with them, isn't he? He's becoming a bit obsessed with these people and what's going on in their lives. And do you notice kind of the comparing that's, that's starting to happen between what he sees as his situation and theirs? And he basically says, if you go through this, this text, they're just like the model of, of health and prosperity. They're never sick. They don't seem to have any, the same kind of problems that other people have. And they're so proud and they're so arrogant about it. They take advantage of the weak. They don't care about the poor. They just walk right past them. They don't help. They take care of themselves to the point of self-indulgent. They're just narcissistic and they make sure everything is just perfect for them. They have no concerns for anybody else. And they make long, happy trips. It seems like they're always on vacation. And they're posting it on Facebook. And I'm having to look at it. And there's this guy who's seven years younger than me. And he's got his Airstream trailer. And he's got his Chevy Silverado. And he's going all over the country. Oh, I'm sorry. I guess maybe I'm going a little too far here with that. I'm sorry. I don't know. Just getting off. But we do that. Look at him. Look how happy they are. Look, they're always smiling. That family never has any trouble. Oh, look at that. It's amazing how we can begin to compare. And, and in the psalm, it's like these folks, they're not worried about any kind of moral constraints. They are just living for themselves and enjoying whatever comes their way. They feel no dilemma with the poor and the needy. Their children are beautiful and rich and spoiled. And they get in the best universities. And this, by the way, is not how his life is going. This is not how his life is going. There doesn't seem to be much privilege in his life. And these people think that all this is theirs and right and heaven too, essentially. They scoff at God. God doesn't see. God doesn't know. The most, there's no, don't worry about the most high. And everybody around them is, is affirming that and saying, well, yeah, because look, because the circumstances bear this out. And the psalmist is having difficulty accepting what's going on in his life and in his world. And then in in verse 13, he goes on and says this, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. So I'm working hard at this life. I'm trying to be pure. But I'm beginning to ask the question, why? 
Why am I putting forth this kind of struggle if the people are right in saying that God has no moral concerns? And the circumstances of their life seem to vindicate that judgment. I think it's important for us to recognize that the psalmist is not looking for some kind of reward. The psalmist is not really looking for money. He's not looking for a promotion. He's he's not looking for something tangible like that, like, okay, now everything's okay. What the psalmist is looking for is meaning. He wants to understand it. What is going on? How can this be? That's what he wants. He wants meaning. He wants an explanation. He wants to understand. And then in verse 15 and 16, If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. He said, you know, I haven't really told anybody. I'm not going out there telling everybody. I'm not telling everyone in the community about what's going on inside of me because I have a concern about the faithfulness of the community. And I'm thinking about that next generation. I'm thinking about the young people. And I don't want to go out there and sow cords of, uh, or, or, or sow seeds of distrust or doubt among the community. And so I've kept my mouth shut. But God, I've got to bring this to you. And he says, this is just becoming wearisome. I can't stop thinking about it. I can't get an answer. Until. It's the next word. Until. But when I thought about this, how to understand it, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Until I entered the sanctuary. Everything changes in this man's life in the sanctuary. When he comes to the temple, to the presence of God, the pieces begin to fit together. He begins to understand. And we wonder, well, what happened in the sanctuary? What Did somebody say something to him? Was there a certain ritual that he was doing at the time in the temple? Was he offering some sort of a sacrifice? And all of this came into his mind during that. Was it during the offering up of a song or a word of praise to God? Was he praying at the time? What was it? And he doesn't tell us, does he? He doesn't say exactly what it was. But he said that's when it was. When he came into the sanctuary... Because when he steps into the sanctuary, that moment has a way of shifting our attention away from ourselves and to the God that we worship. In the sanctuary, you come into the presence of God. In the sanctuary, you're meditating on His Word. You're offering up your praise. In the sanctuary, you're reflecting upon God's mighty acts of deliverance and salvation and grace, not just for the nation or for the community of the church, but for yourself personally. When you come into the presence of God, these are the things you remember. You remember who your God is and what He's done for you and how He has blessed you in so many different ways. And as we do that, and as He did that, 
his perspective changes. He begins to see things differently. These concerns that are just, they're eating him up alive. All of a sudden, they're just gone. They just disappear. They're swept away by the majesty and the grace and the very real presence of God. Because when you stand in the presence of God, you realize how insignificant all of these concerns ultimately are about yourself. It's interesting to me that it's not that this man has learned something new. He hasn't been told something he didn't know before. That's not it. But that he's come into the presence of God. And that standing there in the presence of God, his issues of inequity are overwhelmed by the surpassing value of his communion with his Creator. And these things fade away to nothing. Nothing changes in the sanctuary in terms of what's going on in the world, in terms of the the situation in his life. God doesn't change. Only our perspective changes. Only our focus. And it's not that our problems go away. But it's that in the sanctuary we remember what's most important. We remember our relationship with God. We remember who God is. And, and, and what we have with Him is like, how can anything compare to that? How can anything be measured against the blessings of knowing the Lord God and living in fellowship with Him and, and, and having His forgiveness and, and having intimacy with Him of conversation and communion? We come into the sanctuary and we bring with us every frustration and every question and every doubt and everything that's just putting us on edge and and causing us to wonder or to question. We bring all that with us into the sanctuary and we set it down just long enough in the presence of God to worship Him and to give Him praise. And one of two things will happen. Either we'll forget to pick it back up. Or if there are things that are following us in life that will continue to follow us outside the sanctuary, we begin to look at them with a different perspective. A very different perspective. I'd like to ask you, in an exercise of our faith as a people of God, to enter the sanctuary not a building. For us, the sanctuary isn't a building. But it is that living presence of God that's been opened to us through Jesus Christ and His sacrifice that allows us to come in to the very presence of God and in faith behold Him and reflect upon Him. I'd like to ask you to, to join me in coming into that presence and to sing two songs together as we do so. Would you stand, please? You are beautiful beyond description Too marvelous for words 
stand in awe in his presence. When you come to the presence of God, you are in awe of who he is and his majesty. And yet then to be folded into his arms of grace and mercy, for him to be the shield about us, the one who lifts up our head when we're falling. And that's exactly what happens to the psalmist, to Asaph. It's like he comes into the sanctuary and then he says I understand now 
Now, he said, I, I discern their end. Verse 18, he says to God of the evil, Surely you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. He sees it clearly now. Judgment is coming to these people. It's their footing that is uncertain, regardless of how life may appear. Their so-called advantages, he says, are as illusory as dreams and will flee from them. He knew this before. When we're feeling this way, don't we know this before? We know it. But there's something about coming into the presence of God that makes it ring so true. Why lose faith in God? Because of the passing, temporary, worldly prosperity of evil people on their way to destruction. Why in the world would someone who knows the Lord God envy that? And in fact, now he recognizes that they are in need of his Lord. Because only judgment awaits them. He goes on in verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. And he reflects on his ignorance. Have you ever thought that at some point? God, how could I think that? What was going on? How in the world did I get to that point? I'm like, he says, I'm just like a brute. I'm just like an animal. How in the world did I doubt you? After all you've been to me, why was I thinking that way? And he confesses that to God. He he feels horrible about that. And he understands that he has the ultimate blessing, a relationship with God. And he goes on in verse 23 to talk about God, to draw attention to God. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You notice how he switches to God. You will be with me. You will hold me. You will guide me. And he recognizes that this intimate fellowship that he has with the Father is the greatest blessing that exists. That no one apart from a relationship with God can ever experience what he knows. There's something very interesting about this text to me. In the first 16 verses, take note of the emphasis of the psalmist's words to God when he says, me, my, I, they, them, their. You see it? You see what he's doing? You see his focus? He's focused on himself. And he's focused on others as it relates to his lack of blessing or what he perceives as that. But then we come to the second half, after the sanctuary, after verse 17, we come to this text, and it is you. 
you. You. There's nothing I need but you. And his focus has changed. Isn't that just like us, that comparing game? We take our eyes off of God. We look at ourselves. We look at others. Why? Why? We take our eyes off of ourselves and off of others and we put it on God and we think about our relationship. And it's you, you, you. You'll make them fall. Oh, Lord, you, but you, I will continually be with you. You will hold my right hand. I will live by your counsel. There's nothing that the earth can offer me besides you. And the material things that he was so concerned with, he was so preoccupied with circumstances and material things, it has just vanished. And the man is at a point now, and isn't where we all want to be, where nothing on the face of the earth can win his heart. There is nothing the earth can offer him that he would trade for his walk with God. Nothing. No amount of riches, no amount of good health, nothing. No circumstance in life, all of his dreams on earth, nothing. No, there's nothing on earth, he says, now that I desire except you. And whatever you bring me, Father, whatever comes with that, I'm ready. I'm, I'm abundant in you. And he accepts that. His trials aren't gone. He's the same guy. When he leaves the sanctuary, he's going to go back to the world that is exactly the way it was before he came in. None of that's changed. But it's about coming to the sanctuary and being changed yourself because of your reflection on your relationship with God. And he ends in verse 27. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. He recognizes that sin is no gain but brings only perishing. It forfeits the most important thing of all, which is a relationship with God. And so he'll put his trust in God. God will be his refuge. And then this formerly cynical person leaves the psalm as an evangelist by saying, I will go tell your good works. And he probably knows a lot of wicked people who need to hear about the good works of his God that they might come to know him as well. And so he sets out with that message and how the world still needs to hear the good news of God and his son Jesus Christ. And the psalm essentially ends where it began. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But now it means something so much different and something so much deeper to him because he understands what that blessing is. We all have times of questions. We'll all have times of doubts. And then perhaps some of us have grown to a point in our life that That doesn't happen as much as it used to, or maybe not at all, because your faith has grown. Praise be to God for that. If we're living in that relationship continually, that's exactly how God wants us to be living. But I'd just like to point out this morning as we close the importance of the sanctuary. If you're troubled today, if you're hurting today, if you have frustrations and discouragement, 
if you don't understand something, if, if you're troubled about it, if you just if you're just looking for some kind of meaning and trying to understand what and why and all those things that are happening to you, bring all of that to God. Bring it all to God. Say it all to Him. Do so by coming into His presence. And for us, it's not like we have to go to some particular building to do that because we become the sanctuary as the church and individually as, as those indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we have that kind of continual access with the Father. Bring those things to God. Come into His presence. Make that a vital part of your life. Because God will address those things. God will address your hurt. God isn't going to abandon us or leave us when we come to Him and seek His blessing and His presence. He may not change the situations at all, but He will definitely remind us of who He is and who we are in relationship to Him and the, and the kind of relationship that we have that allows us to trust Him. And if you don't have that relationship with God, if you're struggling today... And, and you know, I'm not, I'm not even a believer in Jesus. I've, never, I've not become a Christian. We would point you to God, to His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who opens up the way to the Father. And if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and you trust in His blood, as our brother spoke of at the Lord's table, to be the thing that opens up, that brings about the forgiveness of our sins and opens up the way to the Father, if you believe that, then turn from any sin in your life and confess your faith in Jesus that He's the Son of God. You can be immersed, baptized into Jesus. The Scriptures teach that your sins will be washed away and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit so that God will dwell within you and there is a sense in which we ourselves become in some degree, that very sanctuary, God Himself dwelling within us, so that that access is continual through the blood of Jesus Christ. Whatever may be happening in your life today, may you and I all be encouraged by the spiritual journey of Asaph. May we remember the heart of His message, which is coming into the presence of God and how that changes everything in our perspective. We're going to sing a song that I pray will be encouraging to all of us, a reminder of what Asaph certainly knew. God will take care of you. And if there's any way that we as a church family can minister to you at this particular point, we invite you to come and let us know. And if you're, if you're feeling a little strange about coming down to the front of the auditorium, don't worry about it. After we're closed... Come speak to me or to Rod. Uh, other elders are gone today, but come and find us and, and we'll talk and we'll pray together. Because we want everyone here to know the amazing relationship we have with God and the ability we have to come in the sanctuary. Let's, let's stand together and sing.